Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me in today's episode are Amory, Emmett, and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. We're wrapping up the year that was with our most important stories from 2022. Emmett discusses 2022 in the context of some past market crashes. Amory breaks down what has gone wrong at Meta, and Rory looks at the whirlwind of a year Elon Musk has just gone through. Rory, Emmett, Amory, welcome to the last episode we're going to record of Stock Club for the year. Uh, we got a full house today, which is exciting. First time in a while. Um, to kick us off, I just went back through our Spotify Wrapped, and there's a few. There's some good stuff in there. I was uh, I was heartily impressed. Do you know, fifty nine percent of our listeners actually follow the podcast. I thought that was a great. Like, as in over half of our listeners get a notification every time the four of us decide we have to rant for an hour. But is that good, Mike? What fifty nine percent never impressed any Irish mammy? If he came home and said, "Hey, I got my maths results. I got fifty nine percent," she would be fully unimpressed. Oh well, considering I don't follow one podcast, I thought it was impressive. Anyways, <laughs> do you not follow your own podcast, Mike? Do you not at least? Have I have that to. Time? I have to listen to it in real time, and then I have to review it before it goes out. I've heard it enough. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you know which country was our number one listeners, our most listeners were from? So most schools, not yeah. literally one person listening, you know, 30 times because they love Rory. Uh, well, uh, that could be it too. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. Uh, haven't is it Barbados? It's not Barbados. Um, is it Ireland? Ireland, yeah. Barbados was the dark horse there. How many countries has Stock Club been played in this year? A uh, hundred and two, two hundred and two, sixty. Showing uh, my drastic eighty, <laughs> eighty-two. I was joking, folks. I know, I know. There's not two hundred and two countries. I just want that on record. <laughs> and how many minutes of Stock Club have gone out this year? Oh, too uh, many. <laughs> well, how many minutes of Stock Club? Well, I suppose fifty episodes times forty minutes is probably two thousand minutes. Fifteen hundred and fifty-nine minutes. What? That doesn't make any sense. That's a whole lot of us. Hold on a minute. Fifteen hundred minutes. But if we do about fifty episodes in a year, and each episode is forty minutes, that's two thousand minutes. Not always forty. We need to get. Yeah, but how? There's a long. There's a big distance from two thousand to. Oh, you said fifteen hundred. Sorry, my Christmas brain is kicking in. Right, okay. So okay. you don't realize how much of you we edit out in post. Yeah. <laughs> a, we know oh. you don't listen to the podcast, so there's a lot of rants we just cut out. Oh, good. Actually, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. No wonder we're number one in Barbados. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into it um, for kind of our wrap up of the year, or. Perhaps a post mortem of the year, I think, would be a better uh, 
a better estimation of it. Um, 2022 has seen the S&P, fall 100, S&P 500 fall more than 25%, record inflation, war breakout, a rapid turnaround in economic policy from every central bank in the world, crypto capitulating, the, world, the world's richest man went off on one, the markets are down, the bonds are down, gold is down, crypto is down, property is down, you can't keep your money in cash because of inflation. Uh, did I miss anything there? Emmett, for, for someone who has been fully invested throughout the dot-com crash and the great financial crisis, how does a year like 2022 stack up in comparison? Mm. Well, at the very top level, you know, we're participating in a system that's a secular bull market, which is just fancy speak to say that that means the price of equities are likely to in- more likely to increase than to go down. And any short-term decreases in prices are compensated by growth over the long term. So we're, we're participating in a system that's a secular bull. Um, and it's like, uh, that's an indisputable fact. You know, our, the thing we're doing here, stock investing works over the long term, but you really need some grit to remember that at times like this. The dot-com bubble, which is, was kind of in the springtime of my investing life, um, came and went the financial crisis and every downturn in history of America, um, came and went as well these days. You know, the downturn that we're witnessing and living through now will come and go. And, you know, there's absolutely no question that the market will eventually recover. So as I said, at a recent Stock Club Live podcast, um, when you recall events like the dot-com bubble, you can either uh, refer to facts or you can refer to feelings. So from a facts perspective today, as we record, the S&P 500 is about 3,817 points on December 27th uh, last year, which is nearly a year ago. Um, it was 4,766 points. So it's down 20% in the last year. And as you rightfully said, it fell about 25% at one point during the year. Now in the year 2000 or in the dot-com bubble, the S&P 500 fell 51%. So from a facts perspective, the S&P 500 was far more maligned and destroyed in at the turn of, of the millennium. But the S&P today has an entirely new characteristic. And it's that about, about 17.5%, which is like about one sixth of the whole index is defined by just five companies. That's incredible. Like an index, a ball of 500 businesses, 17% of the performance of that index is driven by just a handful of companies, Apple being top of the league, followed by Microsoft, Amazon, Berkshire, and Alphabet. So we have an index now that says the market is down 20% compared to this time a year ago. However, just five companies are driving the story, like hundreds of S&P 500 companies. I'm going to go out there and say the vast majority of them, probably 80% of them are at five-year lows. The volume of businesses that have gone down between 50 and 90% from their all-time high is just mind-boggling. And just before we went live, I was looking at Allbirds, who are makers of nice footwear, and they've fallen from a post-IPO price of $26 to two bucks and change. And that, to me, was the story of 2022. Businesses that I like and admire have been just 
blasted, absolutely blasted. And it's masked by this S&P 500 uh, story. You know, it's only down 20% thanks to those giant businesses. So the facts as defined by the S&P 500 have this subplot. Yeah, the S&P was down uh, more than 20 years ago. But when you peel away the cream at the top of today, it's very, very similar storyboard. So again, from a facts perspective, and I'm just speaking from a, a personal perspective, this year was tougher because I was 26 when the dot-com bubble burst and I'm 48 now. So I have less runway. So just being factual about it, like it's when you're 26 and the market does a downturn, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's fine. You can get on with it during the springtime of, well, pretty much everything. But from a feelings perspective, for me, the dot-com bubble was way worse. It was way worse. It was absolutely brutal. Every day, Yahoo Finance was giving a roll call of businesses that had gone under, a lot of which I was invested in. And it's, I suppose, uh, again, I said at our live event that a dictionary writer, our maker Samuel Johnson said that the chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. Um, in fact, I think the exact quote was the diminutive chains of habit are seldom heavy enough to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. Uh, but in more recent times, Warren Buffett said, you know, chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. And that quote became attributed to him. And the reason I refer to that now is that during the dot-com bubble and post-burst, uh, I just kept investing and kept investing and kept investing. And just the way most people, when they wake up in the morning, don't think about having to brush their teeth or brush their teeth before they go to bed. That's, you know, the habits embedded in my life where I just keep investing through thick and thin and it works. So yeah, how does it feel? Well, the feeling it is, uh, the dot-com bubble felt worse from a facts perspective, despite what the S&P 500 is saying, I'd say it's even Stevens. Good man. Thanks very much for that. So we're kind of going to look at everyone's story of the year for this pod. Um, and I think Amarie, she's established herself as the social media expert at my Wall Street over the past year, two years. Um, so the obvious go to here is for Facebook. And it's definitely been one of the most prominent stories, Facebook or Meta. However, you, however you so choose. Um, there's been an incredible destruction of value here in a very short space of time. The company hit all-time highs in September of 2021. The next month, we had the rebrand to Meta. And fast forward to now, the company's down about 70% since and lost about $750 billion in market cap. In fact, you have to go back as far as 2016 to see the stock at similar levels. Amory, simple question to start you out. What? Where has it all gone wrong here? Oof. Um, hard one, but uh, it's probably like the three things, which is the adpocalypse, you know, getting uh, iOS 14.5, the loss of IDFA tracking, central products seem to be in kind of perpetual decline here with Instagram and Facebook have pretty much fallen out of favor with teenagers. And then, you know, I think like the doubling down of the metaverse product has spooked investors, but I think it's also starting to spook staff from meta itself, which, you know, it's, it's always concerning to see. Um. I think on the fir first point, the adpocalypse like that kicked off, gosh, in like 2021. We knew it was going to be pretty bad. Like before even IDFA went away, we continually heard Meta discuss 
you know, we don't think this is fair to small businesses. That was kind of their their veiled reaction, which really was them saying, this is not going to be good for our business. They took out billboards in major cities. They took out a full page ad in the New York Times. It was a big talking point for them. Um, I don't, I even think like with that level of preparedness, they don't seem to have been anticipating how bad it was going to be. I mean, like quarter after quarter, we continually hear Zuckerberg say, we be, continue to feel the impacts of IDFA changes. Um which is just like astounding and it's really kind of gutted Meta's ability to be this like great leader um, in in advertising. Um, and I think kind of the loss of targeted advertising is, is is forcing many advertisers to reconsider where they're spending. I think they're sending money now elsewhere um, just because there's just a loss of effectiveness um, really. And, and, and we discussed this last week or two weeks ago. This problem is only going to get worse if that EU ruling goes through, which will essentially dictate that Facebook and Instagram will need to be in line with GDPR, which as of currently they are not in line because they use this loophole that a lot of you know tech companies do where they basically argue, oh, we need to be able to collect data to run our product. So Facebook likes to say, oh, we must be able to have targeted advertising in order to make money, in order to sustain the site. Um, it seems like the EU is kind of running out of patience with this sort of model. So that will make it even harder for Facebook to effectively sell um, targeted advertising. Um, that kind of means that we're moving more and more almost to like a traditional advertisement model where like it has to be driven by content, right? Like your advertising needs to be pretty interesting. Um it's very difficult, I think, for Meta to maybe pull off that transition because I think under that type of advertising model, you need to have the eyeballs, right? You need to have people's attention. Um, I read a really interesting article in TechCrunch, which basically it was one of their marketing agencies talked about that in a content recommendation model, there's just not as much real estate for traditional ads because it just seems more intrusive and also there just isn't the time to put them in. Um, and, and that means that you really do have to get creative and, you know, you, you can't allow your advertisement to just be subpar and be like, oh, it's fine because the targeting will make up for it. And as of right now, I really can't see Facebook or Instagram being primed to make that transition. Um, it just reminds me a lot of something we talked about at some point this year where TikTok, when they go to advertisers to talk to them about how to effectively use the site, they say, do not make advertisements, make TikToks. You know, you want your content to be so good. It just flows right into the organic feed and people might not even notice it's there. You know, if you want an example of that, go look at Ryanair, who essentially just hires teenagers and tells them, make whatever you want, which is how you end up with this very cheeky, hilarious, over-the-top content but. I would say that that's had a really important impact on even just getting Ryanair's name out there to people who might not be aware of them because pretty much anyone outside of the European market might not be familiar with them. You hear a lot of Americans talking about them now and I think it becomes that thing of they're like, oh, the next time I'm in Europe and I want to fly from one country to the next, I'll just use Ryanair because I've heard of them. I have that name recognition. Um, I think like Meta is just trying to turn the wheels to get into this market. You know, we saw them last quarter discuss, oh, we're going to introduce a creator marketplace, which will help brands partner with, you know, significant people on Instagram or on Facebook, which is trying to get them the more, oh, this is an organic ad type type market. But I just, the, the horse might already run. Like, it, you know, it might be too late. And then we have the kind of secondary point, which is like, it doesn't matter if they can fix the advertisement model, because I'm pretty sure that the central products are in decline. Um, I've never seen a company fumble as bad as Facebook has fumbled Instagram. Like, they just became very panicked when TikTok came out, which is reasonable. Um, but it meant that they just walked away completely from photos. I've talked about this kind of at length this year. Um, and they tried to develop reels to compete with TikTok, but it's, it's just a subpar product. I don't think you ever want to be trying to chase the market. You know, you want the market to come to you. You want to be anticipating things. I think that the development of reels 
in Meta was very reactionary. And you can kind of tell. And that kind of seems to be their last hope. They talk about it a lot on calls where they say, oh, we're beginning to see, you know, advertisement and e-commerce pick up on reels. But, you know, we had that creators X reel State of the Union 2022 leaked to, I believe, the Wall Street Journal in August. And it basically said that like reels is just completely dwarfed by TikTok. It's something like users spend 10x the amount of time on TikTok than they do on reels. And they have consistently for the last couple of months seen engagement on reels fall. So like, I don't think it's going to be this big disruptive force that they hope it's going to be. Um, so then it's that idea of even again, even if they can tilt and go to creative ads, you know, they don't need targeting. They like don't have a product to be able to effectively use that type of advertising. That being said, I originally did all this research a couple weeks ago and we were kind of, you know, this has been this big thing of, oh, you know, Meta's products are in decline. But like the social media landscape in the last two weeks has changed dramatically where we have, you know, like is Twitter just going to combust because like there are rumors like Elon Musk might just declare bankruptcy, throw the whole thing out, call it a loss, write off his investment. And like if that were to happen, like what would happen to Twitter? Would the site just go under or, you know, what would happen to the ability to sell ads or, you know, whatever. So then it's that thing of, okay, if, like if Twitter goes away, that's one thing. And then we have, you know, TikTok is probably going to be banned for American federal employees. It looks like that bill has bipartisan support. It's probably going to make its way through before the end of this legislative calendar. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see politicians coming back and trying to expand that further and saying, hey, we want – we want TikTok to be banned for all American for all Americans. We want TikTok to be forced to effectively store their data with, an, with another third party in the United States, something like that. And a restriction like that could, like, I don't know, maybe that's a miracle. Maybe Meta will be left as the only social media product still standing. Um, so yeah, that might be a funny, funny twist we see, or maybe we'll finally see a new social media company. Yeah, Emma, do, do any of think? Do, yeah, do any of you guys remember a TV advert? I think it was 1980s, which means none of none of you will remember. And it was the Pepsi Challenge. Does that ring a bell? I've heard of the Pepsi Challenge, but I can't remember seeing it. Well, well, there was a kind of um, a TV advert campaign um, where there was two glasses of cola in supermarkets. Oh, the blind, the blind taste test. Yeah. yeah, the blind taste test. And not only was it shown on TV, but it was also in your local supermarket or grocery store. If you're in America, where they had two glasses of cola and then a kind of, um, the, the can covered. So you tasted drink A and drink B and you, to identify the one that tasted better. Well, in the taste test was a Pepsi advert campaign that something like nine out of 10 tasters preferred Pepsi and they'd unveil the two cans. And sure enough, it was Pepsi nine out of 10 times and the other one was Coca-Cola. It was a very direct, uh, duopolistic, I guess, marketing campaign. But it was funny, a few years later, New scientist, uh, as I push my glasses up my nose and do a kind of a, my, what is it called? A horn rimmed glasses up my nose. New scientist did a, a piece that said that when you analyze taste, um, you get the greatest hit from the first note, which is the real sugary thing. But for overall pleasure, Coca-Cola was probably the winner because it had a longer half-life of flavor. And I went into a full analysis of why that actual um, taste test was flawed, or at least was very much biased for Pepsi, who had front-loaded the flavor hit. Now, when when I think of social media, um, I think that Twitter is like Coca-Cola. The pleasure has a longer half-life. The utility just burns there in the background. But the utility that 
Instagram and friends, if you like, provided was analogous to me, like Pepsi Cola, where it gives you the hit, you open it, you see these beautiful pictures of somebody proposing on a boat in the middle of a lagoon, or you're zooming in and it falls back, but it's real instantaneous hit. Um, but the kind of ultimate utilitarian purpose of social media was, I think, absolutely on the bullseye with Twitter. And I don't like using the past tense because Twitter is just there. It's just constant burning news source and all the others are not quite that. And that's why I think they're like Pepsi and why Twitter is like Coca- the Coca-Cola of social media. Very good. Uh, I wasn't sure where that was going at the start. <laughs> Neither was I. Neither you brought I. it back. <laughs> um, we are we're going to get into twitter in a bit um so i'll leave off that for a small bit but um so amory you outlined three major threats to facebook tiktok the ad tracking and the metaverse money hole um out of all these three which do you think might cause the lo- most long-term damage to the company um i think it's the ads and the and the and the products declining but i think those issues are really intertwined you know i think i think users began to leave ad revenue began to fall because of that and then idfa tracking and then meta began to emulate tiktok which made users more annoyed and you know they they left quicker um and then things just kind of got even worse like i see them kind of going round and round in a bit of a cycle there um and I think like that is more disastrous than the metaverse development because like you could pull off the metaverse and like the huge amount of money they spend on it if they could continue with some sort of revenue growth. Whereas I think the revenue growth is starting to stall and it's causing people to panic a little bit because they're saying, okay, top line growth is stalling. And also they're pouring cash into something else. And it just kind of makes you think, oh, I thought maybe we would have a 10-year horizon on this project. And now it seems like it's getting closer and closer and closer to us. So I think that is the is the biggest concern. It's just, you know, it's Google spends an awful lot of money on little offshoot projects and just can basically write it off in its investor presentations because it continues to bring in a, so much money that I think people are like, oh, it's whatever. If you have billions of dollars in cash, I suppose you can waste some of it. Yeah. Well, I think Google, Rory, you always raise this point as well that Google shareholders, you know, if Sergey Brin and Larry Page want to do their moonshots, just do it with their own money and do it in another company. Isn't that kind of the case? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of an argument that's been put up against Alphabet as a conglomerate, although a lot of shareholders kind of use the, the moonshots as kind of one of the reasons to get into the stock as well. So it is, you know, it comes, uh, it comes around just depending on who's, who you're asking. I don't think the argument to let Zuckerberg go off and spend 40 billion quid uh, <laughs> on the metaverse is too, is going to be too strong a suggestion. But speaking of Zuckerberg and he's, he's been the CEO probably with the most, uh, the most power over a company of this size. I think maybe ever. Do, is there ever a situation, do you think, Amory, that he could be ousted as CEO? I mean, because of the stock class structure, he isn't he, he's the majority shareholder. So I, he cannot like be removed. No one can get in there and, and throw him out. There was a rumor that cropped up a few weeks ago that he might step down. Um, that was like a big leak that came out that has been denied. Um, and I was thinking if that were to happen, it, we would get maybe, yeah, like a situation where we just discussed if like, Maybe they would spin off the metaverse part and just like Zuckerberg could go over there and deal with that since it seems to be his real passion project. And then they would just allow the kind of dinosaur products to be ticking over in the background. You know, the stock would maybe move away from growth and just be kind of become an old world player, you know, maybe get a bit of a dividend and that type of thing. You know, I could see that happening. Um but I really do think like Mark is so important to the direction of the company. Um, we saw recently like one of 
the metaverse's like biggest developers, he just stepped down and um, he publicly released his resignation letter. And it seemed that a lot of kind of his reasoning for getting tired, he'd been in the business for like 10 or 12 years, like a significant chunk of time. And it just seemed like kind of Mark's underlying direction was annoying him. And it's, that seemed to be why he felt the need to go. Um, I often look back to when Sheryl Sandberg decided to, to step down um, to be a real indication of, of where Mark was heading because she basically publicly said there is no longer a position for her there. She said she couldn't see a place for herself within the metaverse. And that's, you know, pretty shocking because she is so instrumental and important to meta becoming this giant cash generator you know she effectively created the advertisement market within facebook and instagram and so to see that she you know was basically like well, there's no job for me here anymore it tells me that you know meta overall is going to move away from ads but also will be moving away from its central products and isn't all that interested in developing them anymore which you know is a big concern if, if that is you know the initial reason that you were interested in the stock yeah and zooming out then to Social media as a whole, um, it's not just Facebook or Meta that's been suffering. Snap is down. Snap's been decimated in the last year. Pinterest is down heavy. Tw- Twitter is tw- twittering, I guess, doing whatever the hell that is. Uh, even TikTok, which was kind of seen as this overarching presence in the whole industry that's sucking up all the eyeballs, that even revised down its guidance this year as well. Why is social media getting hit so hard as an industry? Um, I think there's definitely like a macroeconomic wind blowing there. You know, typically for most businesses, the first thing they cut when they're starting to feel the pinch is marketing budgets. So I do think probably there's just less money floating around for them to to snap up. But, you know, it's the things that we mentioned earlier. It's the, the change within the ad game, the loss of IDFA tracking, um, I think – because Snapchat keeps going on about that as well. They've had an awful time trying to, to trying to do ads in the kind of post iOS 14.5 world. Um but I also think it's just like the style of advertising is changing and people are trying to find their footing in that market. You know, I think moving forward, we need to be looking for people who are good at doing ads that are like subtle, innovative, you know, flexible, are able to fit into kind of interesting spaces. Um, you know, you discuss Pinterest there and actually like Pinterest tends to get lumped in as a social media ever since like we've started talking about them. We try and highlight the fact that it is actually kind of a subtle e-commerce player. Um, and in last quarter, they actually beat on ad revenue. And I think it's because their ability to place ads within like the search function is very powerful. It's something like 87% of Pinterest users have purchased something they saw on Pinterest. So it just, you know, people are just in a better mindset to be advertised to. We more and more hear about the fact that like Gen Z people, kids who have grown up with the internet are almost impossible to advertise to because they've become immune because they're so used to seeing it on their feeds all the time that it almost has no impact. So you know, that might place a lot of power in platforms like this, where people are somewhat already looking for something. And this is, you know, even something that we discussed last week within the context of Amazon. Amazon just released their like organic discovery shopping feed, which is meant to kind of emulate the experience you would have on Pinterest or TikTok. You know, it's, it's basically like the online version of window shopping. You, know, you don't know what you need. You go on the Amazon app, you can have a look through all of these kind of pictures and videos, or you can, you know, follow your favorite creators who might have an Amazon partnership. And over time, their algorithm is going to learn the type of stuff you're interested in and then kind of suggest new and innovative products you might not have thought of. Um, that might be kind of the great workaround for the adpocalypse because it's like, it's not advertising, it's content, but it is also advertising. You know, we're essentially going back to QVC. It's just on social media. And that is actually something that's been highly, highly successful in the East within Japan, Korea, and China. You see huge live streaming stars who all they do all day is essentially advertise products and sell them to people. But people are obsessed with the social media star. They're obsessed with a certain type of product. And they watch that content all the time. It's really interesting. And it's actually something that we initially discussed 
like two years ago within the context of Clubhouse because they were built on Agora and Agora was a company that specialized in live streaming. And so much of Agora's argument for their ability to grow within the West was, hey, this shopping live streaming is eventually going to come here. Um, I don't know if that is going to be true. Like, I don't know if that's going to be a huge industry, but I do think this kind of subtlety skirting around advertising, making like making e-commerce shopping more of an experience could be a beneficial way for these players. Um other than that, like I think we're going to see a fair amount of ads probably move into like connected TV, traditional TV, and really kind of put the ball more into like a quality content platform. You know, I think a player like the New York Times or NerdWallet doesn't have to necessarily be tracking its users and developing these really detailed profiles of them because I think the New York Times basically just says, well, if a person is paying and subscribed to the New York Times, you know approximately what they're like. And I think that that will maybe make it a little bit easier for them to sell ads moving forward. But yeah, for the social media game, I think they're going to have to be leaning more into e-commerce and more into creative advertising. When the whole thing has been cracked, on what Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. What I mean by that is that you are really only being served up ads for things that interest you. Uh, I think it's really going to utterly change the game because, you know, for us now watching TV, linear TV, ads are a nuisance. Like they just get in the way. But if it is, in fact, interrupting to show you things that through whatever means they know you need or want, you know, you'll watch your adverts, you know, again, going back to the eighties, he a kid in the cinema, you'd watch the ads with as much interest as the movie because it was part of the entertainment. And of course we ended up punch drunk with adverts and then, you know, we're blind now to TV ads. They just, we either fast forward through them or hit the mute button. But when those ads are really talking about the things you want, like, Hey, do you need new valves for your Fender amplifier? And you're like, wow, these guys totally know me. Yes, I do. Take my money. So there's definitely, I think we will hit a point where your needs are served up to you before perhaps you even realize you need them. A couple of years ago, when we had just founded a business, I met with Professor Barry Smith, who at the time, I think, was the head of the the School of Computer Science in UCD and is a recognized global expert in recommender systems right through to this day. And Barry at the time, um, I think at the time he was he was even advisor to Netflix, who wanted to kind of know that if you like 
uh, watching the movie Dumb and Dumber, you'll actually enjoy a war a wartime movie, which were kind of very tenuous links when you look at it on paper. Or like if you're a fan of Metallica, you, you'll also like Kylie Minogue. And these very strange things, which when you see them uh, written down, you're like, no, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it was, he said that Amazon had built a recommender system that you'd see stuff on your Amazon page that looked totally out of context. So if you went in to buy a book on um, dividend investing, you'd see like a vegetable slicer and the whole, you know, down at the bottom. And the whole logic there was that it wasn't to suggest, hey, guess what? You need to buy an app, a vegetable slicer today. It was to tell you that you can buy a vegetable slicer and that they had enough information to recognize that you're at a stage of life where vegetable slicers are, you know, more, more relevant than, I don't know, like bungee rope. So like, uh, so the, the whole point is that the, 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 the speed of insights that are building through either AI assist or other methods really will bring us to a point where, at, uh, where we'll be shown ads for things we want before we actually realize we want them. I see Rory there in the corner being like, is that not what everyone's Amazon page looks like? <laughs> <laughs> Cooking equipment, investing books, knives. <laughs> yeah. Mine's mostly just recipe books. Um, <laughs> I just thought that was the homepage. <laughs> Amazon is the worst though, when they don't realize that like, whatever you just bought was most definitely a one-time purchase. You know, you like buy a toilet seat and then they will send you an ad like two weeks later being like, look at more toilet seats. And you're like, I only have one toilet. It's okay. I don't need more. Like, It's interesting to see like so much change already happen and then anticipating so much more for ads in 2023. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely going to be an exciting area to be watching. Uh, moving on then, we have to talk about the, I, I don't know, is downfall a bit early to say? Maybe we're going to say that is. It looks like it's he's in the middle of a downfall right now. Yeah, anyway. uh, the uh, spiral, the spiral maybe of uh, Elon Musk. I Rory, have a theory go that on, he please. has th- this whole thing has been he's been trying to get Time Magazine Man of the Year, and he saw what Zelensky was doing in Ukraine and thought, "I'm really going to have to up my game here if I want to take <laughs> on this guy." <laughs> Um, <laughs> it would feed the kind of megalomania of the whole situation, I think. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Um, but, it, but yeah, no, like he hasn't been out of the headlines for more than five minutes and he's kind of trying to guarantee that as well, which would fit to your uh, theory as well, Rory. Do you think buying Twitter was a good idea for the CEO of the largest car company in the world, Rory? So <laughs> it really doesn't look like it was. Um Obviously now, well, by the time this goes out, he could not be running Twitter if that's depending on what he does with these poll results that he's promised to abide by. Um, I think he's going to have a poll out tomorrow morning. What socks to wear? (laughs) I see he's saying now he's going to step down as CEO, but like just run the software and the engineering side, which does sound like he's copping out of this whole actually going to run it. Um, But yeah, look, obviously... Musk also runs Tesla, one of the biggest, some would say, one of the most important businesses in the world right now. Uh, He also runs SpaceX, probably one of the most important private companies in the world right now. You know, a company that has the potential to vastly change the course of human history. And and that's just for starters. He's got various other projects going on, Starlink and the Boring Company and probably loads more that we haven't even um, discussed. And yet, for some weird reason, he's decided he wants to run Twitter as well. Um, 
you know, I like he's a divisive character. He's got his fair share of hardcore fans and his fair share of haters. Um, but I don't think anyone could argue that this takeover has gone well up to this point. Um, I mean, if we go back a long way, just back to his motivations in at the start, it does seem like a rather knee jerk reaction. Uh, to offer to buy a company for $44 billion just because a parody account that you like was banned. Uh, well, I think the, the, the real reason is he <laughs> wanted to get the Elon Jet account removed. Yeah, well, we know that now. <laughs> no very real motivations were. Uh, yeah, very expensive. I mean, I think that guy offered him, he said he'd t- take it down for like 50 grand. That would have been a much better use of his money. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, at the time, you know, as Amory's already pointed out, digital marketing at the time was already in a terrible state. Um, Apple's new tracking policies, it hit some of the more successful platforms. Twitter itself was not one of the more successful platforms at the time. It was struggling and racing to release new products to try and generate new revenue streams. His timing really couldn't have been worse. I mean, if he'd, if he'd wanted Twitter, he probably could have picked it up for a fraction of the $44 billion. Uh, if he kind of just waited a few months. And I suppose you have to give Twitter's management some credit for seeing that and selling up at the time. And of course, we had the whole summer off a of kind of back and forth over whether this deal was going to go through or not. It doesn't really give you much faith in, I suppose, his greater vision of the company when he's trying to pull out of a deal one week and then kind of telling us all how great it's going to be once once he figures out he's forced to to actually yeah. buy it. It's going to um, be it's going to be a WeChat, trust me. <laughs> yeah. It's all yeah. part of what the Super X company. App. Yeah, yeah, the X X.com. Um yeah, there's I mean there's always this kind of idea of his bigger vision in mind, but you know, just off the bat the problem started um you know, companies spend money on advertising on Twitter and one of the biggest kind of sectors that spends that money is automakers. So, you know, right away, you're going to start seeing the automakers start pulling out of advertising because they're not going to want to give potentially sensitive data to their biggest competitor. Um, then you go fire half your staff, a lot of whom worked in kind of content moderation. And it wasn't like these seemed to be some sort of like well-planned series of layoffs, you know, taking into account kind of strategic priorities and platform safety. It was literally like having engineers print off code that they've written in the last few months and then firing those who'd written the least. Um, then he's, you know, he's trying to do open letters to the Avis industry, uh, promising, you know, that Twitter won't become a free for all hellscape, I think is the word he used. But the truth is like they were already struggling to compete in the digital marketing space and advertisers were probably, you know, happy enough to be given an excuse to cut the cord. And the big problem with that, obviously, is that if they go away and they can find better returns somewhere else, you're never going to get them back. Now, according to Elon, the company's losing four million a day. He spent $44 billion on the business. There's going to be spending about a billion dollars a year in interest to service those loans. Their subscription service, Twitter Blue, was a disaster that led to a major pharmaceutical company losing $30 billion in, in market cap after a, a verified account from them, which was obviously fake, posted that they were going to give away free insulin from now on. So, I mean... Do we need to go on? I don't think it's been a good idea. I think no. it's what I'm trying to get to <laughs> You could have just said no, saved us all 10 minutes. That's true. <laughs> Brevity is not my specialty. No, verbosity all the way. We've always talked about the cult of Musk, and for a long time, Tesla's valuation was intrinsically linked to its CEO. With the stock down more than 60% this year, how much of a, this drop can be attributed to Musk's antics? 
Well, I think considering the year that's in it, it's it's probably unfair to assign any one thing to a declining share price. You know, there have been unprecedented inflation, global supply chain issues, spiraling shipping costs, you know, a war. Um, and then on top of that, Tesla has had its own issues, particularly in terms of Chinese operations, where the zero COVID policy has really kind of hampered their ability to produce cars. Um, but I mean, we saw today it's Tesla shares are down, I think, 59% from the time you made that announcement. That's more than twice any of the other major automakers um, and about six times the S&P in that space and time. So, you know, there, there definitely is something to it. Um, and, you know, if I was a shareholder personally, I would worry that he's just a little not focused on Tesla right now, just based on the kind of frequency of his tweeting. Uh, and, you know... He's a CEO. He's got loads of people who are intelligent working under themselves. But at the same time, he has promoted himself as being very important to Tesla's operations. You know, he's the guy who sleeps on the factory floor and makes sure the work gets done. And the Tesla brand is very much aligned with Musk too. He's the fact that he's selling millions of shares that's going to damage investor confidence. And moreover, he's putting himself in a lot of positions now where it's just going to make him very unpopular. Not that that's something that he hasn't shied away from in the past, but you know, he's getting now, he's getting now in the face of like regulators all over the world. Um, you know, the European Union already warned him. He's had online spats with various politicians. Um, and he's on a practical basis as well. Tesla as a company is one that's very much reliant on China, both in terms of its production and its, its for its customers. And, you know, Musk has said he's bringing free speech to Twitter. That's, you know, not particularly in line with the policies of the Chinese government who, you know, the, there's, there have been cases in the past where the Chinese government has strong armed companies that they knew were reliant on their markets. You know, we look at Apple, we look at the NBA, major movie studios have all had to kind of apologize or, or do something. So I'm wondering whether he may have just bit off a bit too much uh, for himself to chew here. And he's probably added, risked up Tesla quite a lot in, in being in control of this business. Yeah, could be a lot of conflicts of interest there. Emmett, you've been a long-term Tesla investor. How do you feel about Musk's antics? You know, uh, not impressed like most people, but last night I was uh, reading an article on CNET, which used to be a huge uh, online resource, and I don't know, I haven't seen it so much these days. In fact, it was flagged to me by futurism.com, which is quite an interesting um uh, quite an interesting daily email. It's a bit out there, but still it hits the nail on the head now and again. But anyway, it was saying that Tesla customers are getting turned off by Elon Musk's Twitter meltdowns. And that according to the piece, Tesla salespeople say, and I don't quantify it, but quote, a lot of customers are cancelling reservations for a car and not signing new leases because of Musk's Twitter behavior. So, you know, I was initially thought, well, you know, the problem is confined to the walls of Twitter and sure, Musk's attention cannot be on all businesses at once. But it's quite interesting to see it now creep or at least being reported that the um, that his behavior is really influencing people's buying behaviors, which for me, as I was reflecting on the piece, it kind of was a further proof point that people need to believe in the business businesses with which they're doing business and you know um ben and jerry's is a great example of a of an ice cream company but they have spent their 
their lives saying save the planet stop the icebergs melting you know if it's melted it's ruined and it's fair trade and that kind of seeps into your consciousness uh which means you're kind of feel you're doing good when you eat a liter of fish food you know (laughs) but anyway so i kind of um yeah i do i do think that uh the the scope creep if you like of of elon's behavior is is larger than certainly I first thought of, especially now that we see his other businesses uh, allegedly getting it in the neck. Uh, has Ben and Jerry's ever called themselves the Nice Cream Company? Because that would be a. I might need <laughs> to. I need to sell them that. I think Trade they have that right away. <laughs> well, do you know uh, this is Tyra- the official. This is the official copyright here, just in case it comes out after. Ice cream is a big business, and just, I, there used to be. I think there was a movie, The Ice Cream Wars, about how Hagen Daz and and Ben and Jerry's were at each other's throats for years. But I saw um, uh, Tyra Banks. You know Tyra Banks. Uh, she she has an ice cream company now, which she was launching forever um, because I was keeping an eye on it, and it was called Smize. And the the concept was that you smile with your eyes. And um, I presume when you're eating ice cream, you're smiling with your eyes. But uh, it really, it's, there's, there's uh, like the, the ice cream duopoly. The, there's so many duopolies in FMCG. I think it's just another one. Anyway, a subject for another podcast. <laughs> I think so. Um, a question for Ollie. So yeah, quick yes or no. Do you think Twitter exists this time next year? Um, I think that it will exist because it's got a real dedicated following. You know, news junkies love Twitter and, and they go there for that text-based news. Um, whether he'll still be there, I'm not sure. Yeah, I would agree with what Rory said. I think like the form of microblogging that Twitter has is so popular and it really doesn't have any competitors. So I think like even if Musk were to like back out, push the company into bankruptcy, something like that, like someone would come in and pick up the pieces. Like I just think the brand is too valuable. Hmm. Yeah, I think it'll be around. I, I, I'd i have little doubt it'll be around. Now, I didn't realize, Mike, you were telling me recently he stuffed it with a whole pile of debt. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's not a, 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 um, that's not a good look, as you would say, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be around. Sure, he's just voted himself off the platform. He knew everybody was going to vote him out. So, yeah, Do I think Do you think, think he did? Around. I actually think he was shocked when that happened. Yeah, I kind of think he was too. Because really? he went, did you see the video from... Do you see the video of him coming out for the, on the Dave Chappelle show and like everyone yeah. booing him and he looks genuinely but, shocked. But he like, does, no. he, he does these things with the Twitter polls. Like, do you remember when he was talking about selling shares and stuff? Like he makes yeah. a decision, then does a Twitter poll and it agrees with him. And he's like, oh, look at me. I'm man of the people. I think he's already looking for a new CEO. Mm. Yeah. Right. Interesting. But I suppose when a poll um, aligns with your own beliefs where I saw this poll and I went, no, he's got to leave the business. He's come in, he's disrupted, he's done his piece, albeit in a very concentrated beam with. He went in and did the complete turnaround job in a full theatrical display. I was like, yeah, he's got to go and he knows he's got to go. I'd be, I'd be surprised if he was surprised. But then when you talk about that Dave Chappelle show, I'm like, oh, interesting. Maybe he just, his self-awareness really is in the floor. Yeah, he initially did try and walk it back by saying that the poll he wanted to like in the future only let people who paid for the blue check marks vote <laughs> in elections, oh. which sounds very much like the voting policy of the 18th century. So mm, I don't think I don't think he realized. Yeah, I think he thought he was really popular. I think he's in a bit of an echo chamber. Amory, you're going to have to give us a 
a lecture on the voting policies of 18th century. Wow, let's let's watch our listenership numbers crater that week. Okay, um, so every year with these kind of wrap up uh, pods, we get our we get our crystal ball out. We make some predictions for the year ahead. Every year they turn out to make us look pretty foolish, but we do it anyways, and we're going to do that as well this year. So um, just to set us up for the crystal ball predictions of 2022 um we're going to look back on last year rory this is a real blast from the past here you predicted that square it wasn't even called it was it's it's now has a different name it's called block now um <laughs> would buy the nft platform OpenSea. so that yeah. just shows where investors minds were at the time that didn't happen no uh emish you kind of went very off the board here and you went for a company called quidel to grow 32% in the year. That didn't happen. It's down 39%. Um, Amory, you said 2022 would be the year of Planet Fitness and predicted it would grow 50%. Neither of those things happened. And um, I didn't have a prediction. Oh, uh, if I did, it was right. That's very convenient that you didn't yeah. have a prediction. Yeah, there's no evidence of it. Um, if, you ha- if you make your prediction now for last year, what do you think will happen? <laughs> I, think, I think the S&P 500 will fall 16.73%. Don't be ridiculous, Mike. Stocks <laughs> <laughs> don't go down, you feel. <laughs> Mike, did you not say something about Unity last year? Yeah, I might have said somebody would try to buy Unity. Facebook or Microsoft. Yeah. Not exactly on the money. Um, okay. So with our reputations intact and our predictive powers at their full limits, Emmett, what is your prediction for 2023? Mike, you very conveniently overlooked the previous two convictions, convictions, convictions. (laughs) (laughs) My previous two uh, convictions were on the money, but anyway, uh, (laughs) let's move on. So yeah. Um, well, I'm going to vary from what I said at our Livestock Club event, not in any way, in any way, because I've changed my mind at that live uh, recording, uh, but because there were a lot of people who, who paid to attend the event or who have subscribed to Horizon, and I don't think it's fair just to put out there as uh, something that people have subscribed to here. But um, I said uh, on the live event that uh, a particular favorite investment of mine was going to grow very significantly in the year ahead. In fact, um, I'm so convinced of it that it was my last buy in Horizon a week or two ago. And on that, why not buy Horizon for a loved one, folks? Always be selling. Okay, so for this podcast, I don't like betting that something will go down. Um, not because it doesn't happen, it happens every day, but because I don't want to be proven right with a negative outcome when there are so many things in this world to be optimistic about. And, you know, every day I wake up optimistic and today is no different. And I was going to go for a prediction relating to Invisalign maker Align, and I was nearly bullish on Align, uh, but found some data at the tail end of my research that kind of forced me to change course, which is horrible when it happens. You know, you've really gotten to a place and you've put hours into something and then you go, oh, anyway, I'm not going to make it about a line. I'm going to make it about a business that I'm pretty sure we've never discussed on the podcast. And it's called Docebo. Do you guys know? Docebo. I yeah. looked at that years ago. I don't think I'd ever came to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so just a, a numbers level, Docebo is is a billion dollar business. It's profitable. 
uh, last winter when everything was flying high, it was $84 a pop, and now it's about $32 a pop. So Docebo, what is it? Well, it's a Canadian business in the LMS, uh, Learning Management uh, Services, is it? Learning Management Services? Um, systems. Systems, correct. Sorry, Learning, learning Management Systems. And they had, they're they pretty big business. I said a billion dollars, 800 employees, uh, eight offices around the world. Um, and they have a lot of giant companies who use their LMS uh, for their companies. For example, AWS, um, L'Oreal, Heineken, you know, big, big giant brands use their system for learning, um, and development inside companies. It's a really efficient business. It's extremely efficient. And when you look at its free cash flow, our more to the point total A or, or annual recurring revenue, it's been that beautiful, xylophone shape that you look for in in uh, uh, quite exponential growth that's an overused expression mathematically inaccurate but anyway that that shape that people think is exponential and um and it's 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 growing at twice the speed of the other lms industry um and for example like last year it had a recurring subscription revenue of something like 104 a million dollars, which was up 66% on the year before. And by September of this year, they had exceeded that amount. So the business is still growing. So I'm going to predict that the trend is indeed our friend here and that Docebo will increase in value by something between 50 and 70% at some point in 2023, which when you look at the um, predictions for the macro market in 2023 is very, very bullish. But this business has bottomed out like every other stock and virtually every metric in there is getting better and better. So I'm going to just basically put a bullish green thumbs up on Docebo, a stock that until I started researching for this podcast last night, I hadn't get a whole, I hadn't given a whole lot of attention to. It's on one of my many watch lists and I just think it's a good one for the airhead. Perfect. Thanks, Emmett. Uh, Rory, do you have a prediction for 2023? Yeah, I'll do one that's um, a kind of fun one based on what we already know and one thing that I personally hope. And that is that a major company, and I think it's probably going to be Amazon, will acquire or attempt to acquire Peloton. Um, We know that the company was being looked at by a number number of kind of suitors um at the start of last year around this time obviously the stock was down quite significantly from its all-time highs the ceo was stepping down they'd had this major pull forward in demand during the pandemic which just didn't continue when the world opened up um since then they've had serious inventory issues they've been trying to shift that inventory they brought in a new ceo who is now totally focused on kind of the software and content element of the business they're really moving away from hardware They've come up with several different initiatives to try and get more of those bikes into the homes, including selling some of their models on Amazon, which they'd never done before. I think the new CEO basically was put in there to make this company um, a more attractive acquisition. So there's a few names out there, Apple, Nike, potentially Disney. But we've seen over the year how Amazon has not hesitated to spend money when it sees a good deal on the table. And I think it may happen in 2023 for them. Very good. Uh, Amory, your prediction for 2023. Yeah, I kind of want to pitch a concept of stocks that I've labeled the beloved millennial collection. And this is essentially an idea of typically when we're in 
tough macroeconomic conditions. You, we tend to see luxury brands do quite well because British people are just unaffected by everything. Um, a good example of that was uh, the Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy group. They were up like 19% last quarter for revenue. They basically said that they've seen a huge surge in spending in Paris and New York and you know, basically like all is well in that realm of the world. Um, but I have kind of noticed there's this like secondary class of they're not quite luxury companies, but they are like middle class high end. And the three that I kind of want to highlight is Lululemon, Love Sack, and Yeti. Um, Lululemon last quarter had sales growth of 28%. Love Sack in Q2 had 46% sales growth. That has kind of tempered down a bit um, because obviously they sell couches and a couch is quite a big investment and that tends to be, their sales tend to be tied to home ownership. And um, so in Q3, their sales were only up 15.5%, but still to have such significant growth at the beginning of this year is quite impressive. And then uh, Yeti, which is they sell like, uh, coolers, water bottles, uh, thermoses, that type of thing, had 20% growth last quarter. Um, It's very interesting to see them kind of just cruise on by. Um, They're all experiencing a little bit of margin pressure due to freight expenses, but pretty much all of them have said that this should resolve by the end of this year, which will, you know, give some margin relief that has some investors worried. Um, Yeah. So I think collectively they will do pretty well in the next uh, year year or two. Um, If I had to pick maybe one of them, I would lean more towards Yeti because I think you know, selling water bottles and thermoses, which have become a massive part of their revenue growth is pretty easy in the current conditions rather than, you know, trying to sell a $1,000, $2,000 couch. Um, Yeah. And all with the exception of Lululemon, both Lovesack and Yeti are down a lot this year. So, you know, I think they might have a nice, a nice bounce back. So, yeah. It's interesting. We should start a, start a ETF. Yeah. Can have like the Gen Y as a ticker, G-E-N-Y. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Good stuff. Thanks everything for thanks for all those predictions, lads. And thank you for being part of Stock Club for 2022. And for everyone out there listening as well. Thank you very much. All oh no, I don't have the numbers for that. In <laughs> in all 82 countries you're listening from <laughs> is what I was supposed to say. Uh, that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you like answered or elevator pitches you'd like to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us on pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show and want to give us a little Christmas present, make sure to leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. And thanks for joining us today and all year. We'll talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 